This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Keynote speaker Jennifer MacArthur, um, founder and principal at Borderline Media from New York. Uh, her background spans nearly 20 years working in radio, film and television, digital media and publishing. Um, in 2008, she um, founded Borderline Media. It's a strategic design company aiming to bring impact production to the foreground. Um, alongside working on uh, the campaigns of numerous films, such as uh, Southern Rights, Out in the Night, Gideon's Army, Traces of the Trade. She's also worked as a consultant on Three and a Half Minutes, American Promise, Dirty Wars, Valentine Road, to name a few. In my mind, she is one of the few people in the space who's working to construct a coherent understanding around what impact production can and should mean. Publishing articles and consulting with institutions such as the Sundance Institute, BritDocs, Tribeca Enterprises, aiming to carve out workable definitions and formalise the field. She started the Impact Producers Group in the USA to unite those in the field, an idea so genius that I, along with Alex Kelly, shamelessly ripped off here in Australia. Um, so we now have an Australian and New Zealand Impact Producers Group, in case you want to join. Um, Jen wrote once, and this is a quote, an impact producer is an executive director of a lean impact type startup. This is not your mother's outreach coordinator, end quote. She's pushed boundaries and in turn had her boundaries pushed. And if we can still use the term, uh, she's a passionate advocate for justice, um, an intellectual, an activist, and a real Renaissance woman, a force of nature. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Jennifer to the stage as our impact keynote to talk on what is sure to be a controversial topic on social impact film in an age of austerity. Please give her a round of applause. So good morning. Uh, my name is Jennifer MacArthur. Uh, as I said, I came in from, from New York a couple of days ago um, uh, to, to join you all. And I want to thank um, Britt and Alice and Alex Kelly and the whole team here um, at AIDC for welcoming me um, to Australia. It's my first time here, first, first time in this part of the world. Um, and it's, uh, it's been a pretty amazing experience so far, and um, I hope it's not my last time coming. Um, so I better get this keynote right or I'll never be asked back again. Um, I wanna begin um, by acknowledging the, the indigenous people um, here, the traditional owners of this land, and paying my respects to their elders past and present before I, before I begin my, my talk. Um, and, and let people know how honored I am to, to kick off this day. Um, I think, uh, you know, clearly this, this word impact and the excitement around impact has become, um, is, is, a, is a giant elephant in the room for many people working in, in documentaries. Some of us um, are, have been working in documentary for, for quite some time. Um, and it might be um, exciting and thrilling that um, the, the field has taken this direction in terms of um, bringing the sort of social issue and social justice focus into, into our work. And for some people it might be um, 
a little frightening and they're wondering why is this why has this this beast sort of taken over what seems to be so much of of the work that we do um i, I know that in the in the u.s you know we've been probably a good um 10 years into to sort of having these conversations around what impact is and how to define it and and why you would do it and how you do it um and uh being a part of those conversations early and continuing um, to to talk with people and and see how uh, the, con- the concept and the way of doing this work has been um, kind of spreading outward um, from the U.S. and and the U.K. and into other areas of the of the world has been um, exciting and challenging at the same time. So I want to speak a little bit about how I see. Um, some of the challenges and, and some of the things that I think um, are exciting po- possibilities and potential um, to, to, to do this work effectively and meaningfully, um, you know, as, as you all here in Australia seem to be um, really getting situated and, and sort of um, for the last couple of years now having, having good pitch and, and sort of all these other um, big uh, films like Frackman and, and, and stuff like that. Um, so I started my uh, my work um, officially uh, started my company in 2008. I had been spending some time, you know, for a few years before that, working a you know as a sort of long term consultant on uh, for different projects and doing much much the same kind of work. But at the time, it wasn't called impact producing. Um, uh, that phrase, you know, I don't, I don't know how much of the, the history I need to give, but I think it's good context so people can understand sort of where where this stuff is coming from. Um, that term, impact producer, was really coined by the Brit Doc Foundation. Um, I was, uh, I applied to and was invited to, to participate in 2012, I think it was. Um, the end of 2012, there were 12 of us that, um, went out to the UK, um, or two of us were Americans, everybody else was from the UK, but 12 people that were sort of part of this initial group that got together with with BritDoc and um, some other sort of key industry leaders to talk about, you know, what we saw were the shifts and the changes in the way that um, the documentary film was being used um, for social change work and and try to articulate um, and and establish some um, some best practices right for people because this work was growing and, and try to understand you know what does it mean how do we talk about it and and when I when I joined that group of people um, I had already spent a few years uh, working in different parts of the media sector, um, not specifically in film, but having worked in public broadcasting in the U.S., advising um, the station community and independent producers and other system organizations on how to um, how to distribute content, you know, in the new media landscape that we're in, how to how to use digital um, effectively, how to engage people online and in communities. So these, and and also having spent some time um, in the public radio sector, um, thinking about journalism and how um, you know how to incorporate some of the thinking around you know community engagement and and. Um, and uh, uh, social change into you know effectively and meaningfully, but still carefully um, in sort of the more quote unquote objective journalism space, um, and having spent some time um, working with a lot of interactive um, you know early interactive projects. So, and I kind of had this varied experience. I'm working across um, 
multiple different areas of what I would call, you know, public media um, and nonprofit um, social justice media intertwined, not the same. When I when I came to um, to get together with the Brit Doc Foundation and the eleven other folks. Um, so they brought up this this term impact producer. This is what we think it is, an impact producer. And and it was actually really a wonderful thing because it was the first time there was a, a term that seemed to kind of describe um, a little bit better um, than the other stuff what I do for a living, which people still, you know, I still cannot explain um, to a lot of people what this is that we do um, because it's so uh, varied and, and multifaceted. And it requires so many different kinds of skill sets to to be effective. Um, I came out of that meeting, um, you know, excited about the possibilities because um, finally, you know, somebody had acknowledged and recognized the role that um, myself, strategists like myself and, and other people that I knew of, the really critical, important role that people had been playing on um, many film projects, but kind of in the background um, and not being acknowledged as such, you know, um, and kind of being, uh, um, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but, you know, essentially being workers sometimes exploited because there was no acknowledgement of, of the role that we played. There was no terminology to explain um, to somebody what an impact producer is and, and, and you know, what they do. So when I came back from this meeting in, in, uh, in uh, 2012, I was really excited to get together with the other strategists and the other outreach coordinators and, um, you know, distribution specialists and, you know, all these different people, interactive producers and um, outreach, you know, engagement uh, coordinators that I knew who were doing sort of this high level strategy work. Um, but you know, really not getting the sort of significant, um, you know, acknowledgement of, of the work that they were doing. And even when I had attended that meeting um, uh, with with the with the crew at Brit Doc, um, I was the only person of the twelve that would, was a, a hired gun, right? Somebody who wasn't an actual filmmaker that wanted to then, after they produced their their film, then take it out in the world and work with it, or somebody who didn't work at an NGO um, that was a, a essentially a political campaigner that wanted to use, you know, incorporate the use of media into what they did, like Greenpeace or something like that. You know, this this thing that is called impact producer, which I think for a lot of people, and I'm not sure how true this is here yet in Australia, but for a lot of people in, now in, in America and the UK, um, you know, is so, sort of thought of as this, you know, consultant that comes on. That was not... Um, that was not sort of how it originally was from from what I could tell originally perceived, right? So it kind of became this thing um, as we, um, as many of us started to organize essentially um, and to get together um, on forming uh, the, what I call the Impact Producers Group, which um, two of my wonderful colleagues here uh, who, you know, sort of a part, who've been a part of those conversations in the U.S., have formed a chapter here. So I, I encourage any of you who are, who are really interested in um, this work and developing skills and um, sharing resources and knowledge to learn more about the Impact Producers Group in Australia and um, get together with Alex or, or Alice, um, who can help connect you to, to the network. Um, so one of the things, one of the reasons why we form the group um, 
It's not only because we, you know, yay, we're excited, we're a real thing, um, but also because many of us were finding that the trends were taking, um, the, the, the larger trends in the field were absent of some sort of critical sort of key parts of the work that we do, which is sort of a deep um, socio-political and economic analysis, okay? So we're gonna go right here, right now. Um, so much of, of the work, um, you know, that was being held up um, and sort of talked about was important, but much of it seemed to, um, seemed to not really understand or not really key in on sort of the deep uh, social movements and networks and activists and, and organizers and scholars and, um, you know, all of the people that we were connected to in, in the way that we do our work um, as sort of part of the way of thinking about using media for, for social change and for social justice, right? That term social justice has really gotten out of favor and now it's social impact. Um, and so, and so, you know, impact being devoid of this this piece around justice around um, is is sort of what I'm what I want to talk about today. And I think you know there are there are very intelligent and and wonderful and smart people who have been critiquing this this sort of issue this this challenge that we have around all of, of social change and social justice work, you know writ large that doesn't have anything to do with media. You know people like Aaron Darty Roy, um, talking about the NGOization of resistance and other you know um, socialist and left uh, critics looking at you know social innovation and and how. Um, you know, that has become such a, a buzz and a, and a thing that everybody from governments on down to, you know, corporations want to invest in. Um, and sort of the links between um, the divestment in, in, in the state and, and in um, public resources and tax dollars going into um, shared, you know, common public resources in the West. You know, this move toward austerity to privatize everything um, and how while that's been going on, there's been this simultaneous interest in the rise of, of you know, social innovation and, and the NGO space and all of these groups that are essentially um, taking the place of what used to be our shared common, um, you know, investment in public infrastructure, in, in public education, uh, uh, in just just in, in, in public culture and the production of culture. Any, any one of us working in public broadcasting clearly knows, um, at least uh, in the UK and in the US, how that the, the, the funding is being, you know, slowly drained out of those spaces. Um, and we're all expected to now, um, you know, get funding from foundations or private investors or, you know, corporate foundations um, to, to fund this work. So all of those are true and all of, all of those trends are, are real and they, they are having an impact, I think, ha ha ha, on, on our field. And um, while, is that, oh my God, is that me? I hope that wasn't me. I'd be the worst person in the world to let my cell phone go off on my own keynote address. If that happens again, I'm sorry. Um, but I, I think uh, while all those things are true, there also is 
you know, people who who generally really care about this work, that are wonderful people, that start incredible NGOs, that work in foundations that care very much about um, about social change and social justice, and um, are doing what they can inside of the structures that currently exist to address address our social ills. And what I've observed is that um, our field tends to overestimate the salience of our strategies in this work while simultaneously underestimating the power of what's happening in the public discourse that we have no control over. That's just happening out in the world writ large among, among people. And, and as much um, lip service and uh, that we give toward how much the world has changed because of because of digital and because of social media, we still function as if we live in a 20th century world where we can control the message and we are the one individual that sends it out to, to the, 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 the audience and the audience then receives our message in exactly the way that we want them to receive it and talk about it and think about it. And, you know, Facebook and Twitter and and, and you can say what you want about how those things are structured and owned and all of that, but the the, the opportunity that it's given for people to surface um, real dialogue coming directly from their perspectives and in conversation with each other is enormous, and it cannot be overstated how important this is to the work of impact producing. Now. When I say we tend to overestimate the salience of our strategies, part of what I mean is that, at least in America, documentary and public broadcasting is niche media culture, right? And I know no one, we, we definitely don't like to hear that, but you know, it is in fact true. And, it's, and that's true for pretty much all other, all media, right? Everything is niche media at this point. The, the, the general audience, the concept of general audience um, is, is, is kind of gone out the window because we live in this very fragmented media landscape. So for at least in the US, unless you're the Super Bowl or you're a presidential campaign, your film or media is not creating a shared general audience moment, right? It's not a shared moment. It's not something that, you know, 100 million people experience all at once and talk about all at once and think about all at once and, and receive and see all at once, right? It's it's. Their, your film or media exists across time and space um, at different points in, in the public dialogue. So a good you know, example of this is, uh, and I don't know how far this has gotten here, but Beyonce, uh, her recent appearance at the Super Bowl, where she, you know, basically celebrated the Black Panthers and, and Malcolm X, um, you know, gave him a nod to Malcolm X in her in her uh, performance at the Super Bowl, which was viewed by 112 million Americans. Now, that is a shared media moment, a mass culture moment. And if you compare that to the show Breaking Bad, for example, which is a critical media darling considered extremely popular. Um, for its grand series finale, it only drew 10.3 million viewers, right? But if, but if you were to, to listen to the way that, that um, people talk about film and media critics and, and, and media scholars and media critics talk about the importance of Breaking Bad, you would think that it had 100 million you know, viewers, but it didn't, right? This is the, this is the big you know, 
a big fiction, huge success, one tenth of what of what the Super Bowl did. So if you look at documentary broadcasts, and I'm talking mostly about television here, um, for for the purposes of this um, conversation, you know, there are all all obviously there are other ways to to get your film seen, and and public screenings are incredibly important, and we'll sort of play with that a little bit, but. Um, you know, documentary broadcast premieres in the U.S. are a smash hit if they get 20% of the audience that a Breaking Bad does, right? So when I say niche media culture, that's what I mean in the sense of it is not a shared moment, a mass shared moment. So while that's happening, while we know this for a fact to be true, we can look at the numbers and we understand this. The trend in the now being called impact filmmaking, which I, I'm not sure I know what that means exactly, but I guess I have to use that term. The trend in impact filmmaking in our space is to create documentaries with mainstream audience appeal in order to position them in such a way that we can drive or affect the national um, and even international public dialogue, right? And we're mainstreaming documentary storytelling and that seems to sort of go hand in hand with this, this sort of impact strategy that's very simplified and sort of lowest common denominator that can reach you know, anybody by appealing to a general audience aesthetic. So even though we, we know for a fact that the, the biggest moment in time when a film is gonna be seen with the most eyeballs is still maybe only two million people if we're lucky we're still pushing the field toward attempting to ape sort of the mainstream media pop culture kind of presentations of somebody like a Beyonce who's gonna get 112 million viewers when she goes on television, right? So that's a problem. And, and it's a problem because we're facing really, really critical social problems police brutality, equal access to education, contaminated water, the worldwide refugee crisis, because it is worldwide, essentially, right? Just a few things to name. And they're, not, they're caused by really complex sets of variables. These are not things that, that you, can, you can do one thing and fix. You've got to attack it from multiple ends because it's a very complex, these are very complex problems. It's not enough to just tell somebody to get out and vote or to petition their, their Congress critter, um, you know, who, by the way, is probably funded, their campaigns are funded by the very forces that are part of the problem that are creating these issues, right? So we're, we're being asked to appeal to the, the better natures and the power of, of, of political forces oftentimes that have been compromised by, by big money in politics that when we haven't addressed those structural problems. So, you know, maybe the most effective way we can, we can influence the mass public conversation isn't to, to try to become, um, you know, that mass media spectacle. Maybe it's to situate ourselves in this fragmented media landscape in a way that we can respond when the right opportunity presents itself. Because to do so, to try to do that other thing, is to actually compromise the, the real potential for social change. Now, 
I want to point to this this example of Beyonce to sort of tease out this this a bit because she did her performance about a week before um, Stanley Nelson's documentary Black Panther's uh, Vanguard of the Revolution had its broadcast premiere on, on, on PBS. Now, I saw um, almost immediately uh, after the Super Bowl performance among my networks of, of people, you know, looking on Facebook and Twitter and things like that who work in the documentary film space, so very, very excited about Beyonce's performance. And there was a, a temptation, which, which often happens for us, to, um, again, to overestimate the salience of our strategies by saying, look, Stanley Nelson's film has been out for a year on the circuit. It premiered at Sundance. It's had this film festival run. Um, it's had all these great conversation. And look at how it has influenced the Super Bowl, right? Someone kind of said that on Facebook. And I had to kind of like, really? Um, and, and I'm not saying it's not true. It's not, it's not impossible that, that Beyonce somehow saw Stanley Nelson's film and decided that she was going to strategize to create a whole public performance at the Super Bowl based on the influence that she thought that film was having on the larger national public dialogue. What might have been more true, and again, the filmmakers can correct me, I will ask Stanley when I get back if if this is wrong, but what might have been probably more true is that um, it was the 50th anniversary of the Black Panthers being established. Um, She was in the Bay Area where the the Black Panthers were partly established, and... um, she did her performance based on the the you know also on the video that she had just released the day before that's probably sounds like a more accurate assessment of the order of how those things influenced each other so when beyonce gets out there and she does her halftime performance um she sort of unleashes this this public dialogue about um online about um the black panthers right all of a sudden, it's just crazy amounts of information, and immediately, um, no, which is which is interesting because she, you know, they didn't actually say much about the Black Panthers. They just the song doesn't reference the Black Panthers at all. You know, they just got into some very sexy outfits that um, resembled, you know, the Black Panther beret and and the whole thing. So she she puts out this performance and she unleashes this huge you know public discourse and immediately our fox news um our, our my my former mayor mayor giuliani um and a, and a one-time presidential candidate uh gets out there and, and critiques this and and sort of problematizes her performance for the public discourse by calling it anti-cop and that's within a day or two after the, the performance. And then by the end of the week, Saturday Night Live, which is the the you know the comedy show on on live comedy show on Saturday um, evenings, satirizes that conservative backlash to Beyonce's performance with this crazy video about Beyonce turning black and how it's affecting um, you know, white consciousness that they didn't realize that Beyonce was a black person until that moment when she came out so pro-black. Um, actually really, and, 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 and very, very funny, 
right? So there was this very serious conservative backlash to Beyonce's very fluffy kind of light performance that was kind of sexy and, you know, kitschy. Um, And then SNL making fun of those conservatives who were so upset about this performance, which had very little little political, um, you know, deep political discourse or analysis baked into it, right? And all of this, while all of this is going on, this is only, this is happening over one week, right? So it's not even as if it's like a long term, but one week, the, the internet, at least from our vantage point, was insane with this conversation bouncing back and forth, you know, boom, boom, boom. Now, after all this is happening, that's when the Black Panthers film premieres on on public television. And so I think, you know, and when it does, it has enormous ratings and it trends globally, globally on Twitter, the night of the broadcast. People are the the hashtag for the Black Panthers documentary is is trending globally. And people like Macklemore are talking about how they're learning and all these other things. And and why, why does that happen, right? Because the, the public dialogue about the Black Panthers that was kicked off by Beyonce's performance was entirely about semiotics. It was not about any real information whatsoever about the history of the Black Panthers, who they were, what their politics were, why they did what they did. None of that was contained in there. Everything was about symbols. Everything was about symbols. And people were responding to those symbols, right? And they were trying to understand what those symbols meant. And every time there was another moment in the, in the mainstream media dialogue about the performance, it got further away from the actual reality, the real reality of the Black Panthers, and more and more and more into interpretations of what Beyonce's performance meant. So it got away from the reality and was just in this semiotic world where we're all having conversation and trying to make meaning of, of the images that we're seeing. And that performance was complicated by the video that Beyonce had just released the day before Formation, where she had all this imagery in it that people were also trying to understand, right? So if you were a religious person, you could, you could watch the film, the, the video Formation. Now we're, now we're talking about the video the day before. You could watch that and be excited by the references of sort of like African spiritual traditions that were in there. You you could see some elements of, you know, stuff from out of the Congo with the Kalunga line and and Mami Wata and and things like that. Or you could be really, really insulted that it looked like she was dressed in black at a funeral and talking very explicitly about her sexual gratification doing this, right? So both things are happening in this video. And depending on where where you come into it, this is what you're seeing. And it goes on and on and on from there. There's lots of different examples of, 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 of ways you could read the different things. If you're a feminist, you could be excited about Beyonce calling women together to get in formation and fight against oppression. Or you could be pissed off that she was shaking her butt and, and you know, showing off all of her, her body parts um, and, and being really sexually explicit. And maybe that's disempowering for women. Um, you could you could be excited by her references to Jackson Five nostrils if you're African American if you're black and you 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 want to feel positive about that or you could be mad the fact that she's had several nose jobs and it's really clear so that seems very very uh, hypocritical right if you were from from the LGBTQ community you could be so thrilled that Big Frida who I'm a huge fan of um, like a, a stalwart and a towering figure in sissy bounce in new orleans 
had you know his voice featured in the in the film or you could be in the in the in the short or you could be pissed off that he wasn't physically present which some people were right so there are all these different ways that you could experience what you were seeing and i think that the the biggest the biggest one and where where we get to the anti-cop part is the dancing boy there's a dancing boy he's in front of the line of riot cops and you could read you could read that as as the cops raising their hands in a gesture of solidarity with Black Lives Matter, which is how I read it. Or you could read it as, as anti-cop, which is how Giuliani read it. So the Panthers documentary lands at a moment when we are having this big public discussion about symbols and imagery and what it means. And here's a documentary that touches on almost all of the issues that the that that were you know, that people were discussing, the symbols that they were seeing in the formation video and in the, the, the halftime performance. And, the, and though the documentary was, was clearly situated from the perspective of, of the Black Panthers, right? It's coming out of their, out of their history, their story, and their, and their worldview. The, the documentary still showed them in a very complex way. It wasn't, you know, wasn't all peaches and cream. You got to see, um, you know, how crazy some of them were. Um, it, it interviewed the police, both black and white police, so you could get the perspective from, from the, the, the other side, quote unquote. And it provided all of those historical documents from inside of the FBI showing, you know, that they explicitly wanted to infiltrate COINTELPRO, explicitly wanted to infiltrate the Panthers and to bring them down. So you have all this information that was not at all a part of any of the discourse and the documentary landed at the right moment to help people understand what they were seeing. So, you know, time's gonna tell what the impact of, of, of having that broadcast at that very moment occur, but we already saw some of the, the response online through social media, as I was saying, like Macklemore saying, I'm learning and all these other people talking about, this is stuff I never knew. Um, so you can see the potential for a shift in, in consciousness and understanding about why the Black Panthers existed the way that they did and came to be. So that's sort of like a one way I like to think about the usefulness of documentary film and why it, it can have impact, the kind of impact that it can have in the world that we live in today, which is somewhat ahistorical, which is politically polarized which is all about the, the, the symbols and, and, and full of this sort of symbolic information and, and, and so much information that it's very, very hard to make sense of things. That if you, you and this is sort of a responsive way, I would say, of having impact. I think there's also alternatives. I'm not just being responsive to the public dialogue and this is something that I had to think about a little bit more as I was talking with Alex over dinner the other day, and, and still the desire that we have um, as impact producers and people who work in this field to have a, a, a real impact on the public discourse, to not just be responsive to what people are saying and not just put the information out there when they need to hear it, but actually drive it and to shape it and to, and to make meaning. Um, and I think one of the big things is um, that's possible 
but it isn't possible necessarily on the very short time frame that we've set ourselves up for when doing these kinds of campaigns in the one or two year or even six month thing that we think that we're doing when we put a film out into the world with the, you know, spending all the time with the strategy and the working groups and the activists and the whole thing, putting it all together, which isn't to say that work is not important. It's critically important to making sure your film and your media gets out in the world and does what it needs to do. But perhaps we want to rethink how quickly that is going to happen. And that this drive to quantify and to understand um, and to measure um, using all the big juicy data that exists out in the world is actually not helpful to our understanding of how change happens and what change is happening. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, center some of my work. It's not something I, I actually often do when I do these talks or when I talk to people. I don't actually talk so much about my own body of work. And so I'm going to talk about it a little bit today, sort of offer up a way of thinking about the kind of impact you can have um, over time. You know, first, I would say, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing of, you know, hearing Gloria Steinem say, you know, when asked, how long does it take change to happen? And she says, 100 years, you know, that, and that's, I think that's true. It certainly feels like it <laughs> for somebody. I've been doing this, you know, working on the um, sort of intersections of, of race and class and gender and, and this sort of intersectional analysis of, of how all of this plays out, um, at least in the United States. Um, and, and now bridging into into the world and sort of looking at large across the world and the similarities between, you know, our settler colonies, U.S. and Australia and Canada, and you know, Europe, the homeland, so to speak, and and all the you know the rest of the of the global South. You know, there are trends, there are things that we can that we can see and look at, and so I want to sort of speak to some of that um, around my work. So, one of the provocations in the in the um, in the in the sort of setup was you know how do we get away from this measurement of you know cheesy data points um, impact metric data points which again those are important but they're 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 not the whole enchilada right the whole enchilada for 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 me and for a lot of the other impact producers are are the things like movement building, organizing, you know, cr helping create solidarity across different groups that have common interests but may be splintered by, you know, certain uh, 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 drives or impulses due to identity politics. You know, how do we actually create the kind of networks and the kind of support that we need? You know, how do we use media and stories to do that? How do we talk about the human condition? And, and, and tell stories that talk about the human condition and, and the, the experience of being human um, in such a way that it, it brings people together and helps them understand um, how to advocate you know, on their behalf collectively. So in 2008, I, uh, I met uh, a first-time filmmaker, Katrina Brown, it was uh, and she was doing her, she had made her personal family documentary and it was called Traces of the Trade. And in it, she she discovers that her New England ancestors, where which is where I I am from, where I grew up, um, were the largest slave trading dynasty in U.S. history. They brought over more enslaved Africans than any other group of people 
in 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 all of U.S. history, and something I think it's they they were thinking that something like one out of five African Americans today are probably descended from one of the enslaved Africans that they brought over on their on their ships. So they have a a really really outsized influence on the creation of of African American people and identity. So. In this documentary, she invites nine of her um, fellow descendants to join her in retracing the steps of the triangle trade to try to understand this legacy, this history. They call themselves the family of 10, and they document this journey as they're kind of uncovering the northern complicity in slavery which is this history in the United States that we're really only beginning to unearth now, and it's hundreds of years old, but somehow we have forgotten the, 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 the role of the North. The way that we talk about slavery and race relations and Jim Crow is all really centered on the South, and we kind of try to push it down there. Those people down there are the ones who did it, right? We up here in the North, we were the abolitionists. We were the, we were the good people. Well, it turns out, that that was entirely true. That it was that 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 it was very much a part of of the Norse economy and history and identity. And Traces of the Trade was probably really the first high profile film or you know media of any kind actually where white Americans spoke openly and very publicly about this centrality of slavery to to the American the development of America and 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 how Americans, white Americans today, still benefit from that, those systems and that structure that had been set up that privileged um, them over uh, African Americans. So when I came to this film and when I came to the, to the family of 10, it was really a revelation for me because I had been working for some time um, on media projects that were focused on on race in America and told from the African-American experience, um, you know, from from that side of it. And I had, when I came to the project, I had just come from um, working on StoryCorps Grio, which was a national oral history initiative um, culling the, you know, for the U.S., culling the stories of, of um African-Americans who had kind of struggled through the civil rights era. And one of the things that happened when we were, when we were collecting those stories and, and sharing them with NPR and having them broadcast is um, as I was out there, you know, for every one story that we would find and that we would air, um, there were probably, you know, 20 that we had to collect, right? So, um, the majority of the stories we were hearing and listening to were, were black people who were talking about some really painful experiences, right? And they were alive today. It wasn't like they were talking about slavery or talking about, you know, what have you. These are people who were escaping Jim Crow terror and lynchings and all sorts of things who were, you know, as, as old as my, my parents are slightly older and, um, and had suffered some real you know, real terrible trauma from from that ex from that era and that experience, and 
we were not really able to hold that. We were not really able to tell that story of how much pain still existed in, in, in African-American communities. The story that we told when we got on the air and put was the story of triumph and overcoming. As this post-civil rights, we have, we have gotten over racism in America. Yay. And yet um, every month that I spent you know, on that tour, got me further away from that narrative. The distance between those two was so huge in my mind that yes, on some level we were we had um, we had made some significant changes and yes, things were had gotten better, but there were still people who were suffering and had a lot of pain that had gone unacknowledged and unaddressed. Um, and they lived with us every day. It wasn't like they were some far away thing from hundreds of years ago. They were they were our cousins and our and our neighbors and our and our friends, right? So to meet a group of white people who were willing to step into this public conversation and to to talk about um, how they connect to this from their perspective, for me was an act of solidarity. It was a moment of true solidarity. It wasn't somebody swooping in trying to tell the story, the sad, sad story of some African-American that did XXX or some poor Haitian somewhere else. I'm going to go save the world and volunteer. It was, it was people who were centering their own selves and their own experience and how they connect to this issue and having a moment of self-awareness and modeling that for the rest of the country. There's a, um, a, just a quote I quickly want to read um, from one of Katrina's interviews on Democracy Now! that really sold me on this project and made me want to come on board. And she says, one of the things I've come to appreciate is the depth of the emotions that get in the way for white Americans. It's an example of a larger pattern, defensiveness, fear, guilt, shame, those emotions get in our way, both from really confronting our history and coming to appreciate the vast extent of sort of the tentacles of the institution of slavery and how fundamental it was to the birth and success of our nation and to paving the way for the waves of immigrants that came subsequently. So discomfort looking at that history, obviously, but then also discomfort with grappling with the implications for today and really coming to grips with that. I hear so many black Americans say, you know, we're not trying to guilt trip you or to quit taking it so personally. We just want you white folks to show up for the work together with us of repairing those harms that continue to plague this country. So I have noticed how I have gone from extreme knee, girl, knee jerk guilt reaction to learning about my family and my, my region to a more grounded and I would say mature and calmer ability to take stock of the inheritance. We are an extreme case, my family, yeah, again, but it provides a view into what I think all white Americans need to look at in terms of those legacies of white privilege and whatnot. Now, we built a really robust educational outreach initiative. We were able to sell the film to California Newsreel and it ended up being California Newsreel's highest selling film of all time. That may not be true still, but it was at one point. Um, and we worked with um, humanities forums around the country and uh, public radio and public television stations and institutions that could help build in this information into their public programming, into their educational programming, so it could be part of the way that people understood and learned about America and our history. 
is not something that was going to solve racism in America. It was not going to change an immediate law. It wasn't going to get us to do to 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 get the 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 Congress apologize for slavery and, and give over reparations. Um, none of that was going to happen out of this one film. But what it was going to do was to start an important dialogue coming from a key group of people, the you know the other side of the relationship, essentially, that could join the conversation and model to other people how to be a part of the conversation so that people of color aren't the only people holding this work, right? And I, and I, you know, that was eight years ago. And a big reason why the film was able to be as successful as it was was because, you know, eight years ago, there's somebody named Barack Obama <laughs> was running for the presidency for the first time. And America was debating on whether or not it, it was, you know, free of its racism enough that it could elect a black president. And because the film had landed at that particular moment in time where that public discourse and that conversation was happening happening much like the uh, Black Panthers film, we were able to have a much bigger impact and able to find a way into the public discourse in a more meaningful way because it gave people an opportunity to make some meaning. It gave people an opportunity to understand the situation in a different kind of way and modeled for them a way to approach thinking about the work. Um, I think my time is nearly up, and I didn't even answer any questions. But I will say um, a couple of quick things. Um, that was the first in, in several films that I've been able to work on. It's really the primary one that comes, you know, focused from a from a white perspective. But I'm glad I got to show it to this audience because I I think that. Um, there is something, even though it's very specific to our history and our history of slavery, I think that there is something that you all can take away from this work and specifically this film, is that solidarity and support and social change isn't always about you, know, you solving a problem for other people. Sometimes it's about understanding how you are positioned within that problem. You know, social change and, and the, the problems that exist in the world don't exist outside of us. They don't exist outside of who we are. They don't exist outside of our experiences. They, you know, it's not something outside of you. You are part of it. You and, and how you come into the world, you're part of this. And so when you're out there trying to figure out if you want to be an impact producer, if you want to be an impact filmmaker, if you want to get out into community, you have to understand your relationship to these issues, right? You have to understand the way that you're positioned, the way that you see things and why, the way that other per people perceive you and why, and what you bring to the conversation. And that is the biggest impact that you can have is, is, is self-awareness, right? Is, is bringing that to the work. Thank you. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.